Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to the Federal Society's virtual event. This afternoon, May 10th, 2022, we discuss central bank digital currency, efficient innovation, or the end of the private banking system. My name is Ryan Lacey, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent panel moderated by Alex Pollack, who I'll introduce very briefly. Alex Pollack is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He previously served as Principal Deputy Director at the Office of Financial Research at the U.S. Treasury Department. He also served as a distinguished senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His decades of banking experience include being a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis. Alex graduated from Williams College, the University of Chicago, and Princeton University. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Alex, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ryan. And let me add my welcome to all of you who are joining in this webinar. The question of whether central banks and the Federal Reserve in particular should issue central bank digital currency, or CBDC, and if so, in what form is contentious, very important and timely, and we're fortunate to have such a knowledgeable panel to consider it today. CBDCs mean the public would have deposit accounts with the Federal Reserve, either directly or in some inter intermediated fashion. But either way, the public would hold liabilities of the Fed instead of deposit liabilities of private banks in the CBDC form. The CBDCs represent a great irony, I think we can say, because a, uh, an essential goal of cryptocurrencies and their formation was to escape central banks and the control of central banks. But now the central banks themselves uh, are thinking about issuing their own form of cryptocurrency, that is to say, central bank digital currency. And they've taken over this digital idea with the possible result of even greater centralized monetary power than before. I'll mention just a few key issues posed by the possibility of CBDCs to begin. Uh, one, what improvements in the financial system might a CBDC offer? Two, will a CBDC lead to a Federal Reserve monopoly of the deposit business, perhaps the end of private deposit banking? Uh, three, uh, would a central bank digital currency pay interest or would it have to be by definition a non-interest bearing account? And if it does pay interest, how much might it pay? Four, will a CBDC lead to a national concentration of Federal Reserve power over credit allocation and personal information? Uh, and five, we can say that a CBDC in any form will expand the Federal Reserve balance sheet of necessity as the liabilities expand. What assets will accompany the expanded liabilities? And, and in my view, an essential question very seldom uh, discussed in these matters, but has to be addressed. Our panelists doubtless will think of numerous other questions and pros and cons of CBDCs. And let me introduce the panelists in the order in which they will speak. Uh, first will be Chris Giancarlo, who is senior counsel at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher in their New York office. Chris has served as chairman of the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission. He's been executive vice president of the GFI Group and numerous other assignments. He's a well-known advocate for the role of blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and digital assets, uh, and is known as Crypto Dad on Twitter. Maybe that's going to become Crypto Granddad here <laughs> soon. Our second speaker will be Greg Baer, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Bank Policy Institute. He has served as President of the Clearinghouse Association head of regulatory policy at J.P. Morgan Chase, 
and Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at the U.S. Treasury Department. Greg is also the author of a book, Life, the Odds. Uh, so perhaps today, Greg, we can consider if you have to compete against a central bank, how good are your odds? Uh, and our final speaker will be Bert Ely, uh, who has been a provocative thinker and commenter on fundamental banking issues since 1981. Uh, Bert focuses on conditions in the banking industry, uh, on monetary policy, the, the growing federalization of credit risk, and has been a noted skeptic of cryptocurrencies, especially of the uh, issue of today, namely central bank digital currencies. Each panelist is going to make an opening statement of 10 minutes. Then we'll give the panel a chance to respond to each other or to clarify points. And then we'll move to a general discussion, including audience questions, if you send them in. Uh, and we will adjourn at two o'clock. And with that, we move to our panel. And Chris, you have the floor. Thank you so much, Alex. And uh, it's a delight to be here with Greg and with Bert. And Bert's an old friend, so delighted to do this again. It's great to be with the Federalist Society. Um, I was a member of the Federalist Society's very first chapter at Vanderbilt Law School in the early 80s. And I've always had tremendous respect for its commitment to robust and, and, and healthy and, and respectful debate, taking into account all sides. I want to uh, respond to your opening uh, and before my own remarks by saying uh, something provocative that I'll come to at the end. And I think the question is not who um, deploys digital currency, whether it's the public sector or the private sector. I think the, really the question is who will, which of those will best protect individual privacy and economic liberty. And I would venture to say that the conclusion is not a foregone one, that the private sector would necessarily do it better than the public sector. Having said that, um, as people who know me know that I'm a great believer and advocate for free capital markets. In fact, it was our work at the CFTC in 2017 that established the world's first regulated marketplace for crypto derivatives on Bitcoin and eventually Ethereum. And in fact, that marketplace, the establishment of that marketplace uh, established that those two cryptos would be settled in US dollars. Like most of the world's major commodities that are similarly settled in US dollars, it's an underpinning of the dollar and its role in the global economy. And yet it was, in fact, it was the free market itself that began experimenting with digital money starting in 2008 with the Satoshi white paper. And it's the public sector that's been way behind the curve in doing that. But the public sector has woken up to the challenge of the private sector's experimentation with digital money. And in fact, is now rapidly catching up. As I think most of the listeners know, nine out of 10 central banks in the world today and more than 50 are, are looking at central bank digital currency and more than 50% of them are actually experimenting with it. So let's talk about technological evolution of money and what it means. Historically, we know that technological advantages have one or been one reason why money has evolved from one form to another. In fact, the dollar itself is named after a currency that for a time was the most technologically advanced currency, and that was the Spanish dollar. The dollar wanted to mimic the Spanish dollar's superiority over other currencies during the period of the European exploration of the Western Hemisphere. During that time, there were many currencies in use by the explorers, but it was only the Spanish dollar minted with new world silver that was more consistently pure, requiring less alloy, making it lighter to transport. But more importantly, that was minted in a way that could be broken into eight equal pieces, known as pieces of eight, that made it fractionable. So it was a technological advantage of that currency over other currencies that gave it its prominence in international commerce, so much so the United States named its own currency after it. Technological advantages of one currency can often lead to an advantage in global trade, and we know that countries compete in global trade. So what is this technological advancement of money that is shorthand, we shorthandedly call crypto? Well, it's nothing less the, than the internet doing to finance and banking and money itself the same thing it's done to other forms of human commerce. Arguably, the most important hardware 
invention of the 20th century was the semiconductor. And that allowed us to take giant mainframe computers on military installations and college campuses and reduce them down to personal computers and manufacture and distribute tens of billions of them around the globe. But I would argue it was actually the software invention of protocols that allowed those computers to talk to each other that basically weave them into a giant global supercomputer that transformed the way we approach and our relationship with information. The, the first wave of the internet was an internet of information that transformed the very way we interact with each other and with information in a much more personal and direct way that's less dependent on proprietary rails, like Encyclopedia Britannica, for example, that owned information. In fact, the best example of that internet of information is when I was a college student in Europe and wanted to call home, it was very expensive. Now I speak to my son who's a grad student overseas anytime, day or night, 365 days a year, at no cost at all. Why is that? Because I'm not using the proprietary phone lines of the Bell system or British Tel. I'm using the internet itself through FaceTime. Well, the second wave of the internet was an internet of things. As those microprocessors got smaller and smaller and installed in devices, it was a great hardware step forward, but it required a software step forward in terms of wireless technology. 5G, um, um, uh, uh, Bluetooth, and others that allow us to put those devices together for an internet of things. Well, now, once again, the hardware has gotten so sophisticated that it only takes a protocol to allow that worldwide web of computers to do what banks and financial institutions have been doing, and that is validating who owns what and who's transferring what to whom. And that's what the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper was. It was the protocol in the same way that Bluetooth and, and, and TPC IP changed the way internet information is networked. These are protocols, whether it's the Bitcoin blockchain or whether it's Ethereum, they're protocols that allow us to use this worldwide web of billions of computers to do the validating of who owns what and the relationships we have with things of value rather than what we've had for now several centuries, basically bank balance sheets being the recorder and the validator of value and the reliance, therefore, we have on those single points of failure, as opposed to a forward-leaning technological advancement in the recording, the, the validation and the transfer of value. So that is what crypto is about. That is what the digital, the question is, who are the providers of that service? What is the role for government? And what is the role for the private sector? Okay, well, we can take a look and see what's happening because one country in the world has already decided that only digital money can be done by government, and that's China. China is very far advanced with their ECNY, which is now being uh, um, uh, 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 deployed um, in exclusion to private sector initiatives like stable coins and bitcoins, which have now been banned. It's government only. And I just had the honor to serve on a Hoover committee that spent a year looking at the Chinese digital currency called their ECNY, interviewing uh, representatives of the People's Bank of China, studying it deep. And, and there's a number of key factors to this. Number one is it will be programmable. Number two, it will be a surveillance tool. If you criticize the regime, your money will be turned off and you won't be able to get a train out of your village. But it will also be for export. It is going to be a major export part. There are many countries in the world that want that same surveillance tool over their citizens. And it will be used in the Belt and Road Initiative. We may be staring a few years from now and seeing the deployment of that digital currency around the world. But China's not alone. There are others. The European Union is looking very seriously at a digital euro. And that euro, while it will be safe for, from commercial uh, exploitation of data, governments will have surveillance over it. So the real question is, what should be the response in a free society, including the United States? Uh, two years ago, I, with some colleagues, launched the Digital Dollar Project, a not-for-profit private enterprise based on a couple of key proposals. Number one, we believe that money is as much a social construct as it is a government construct. And if you look at her throughout history, government money has no value unless society accepts that value. So they must work together. We believe that a private initiative to explore sovereign digital money is very much appropriate. 
So our goals are to encourage U.S. leadership in developing key protocols and to pilot test and to develop germane data and experience with this before any decision is made to de deploy. The worst thing that could happen is Congress goes into one of its classic Memorial Day weekends, drafts some legislation, and on Tuesday, we've got some sort of digital dollar. There must be robust experimentation with this, and that can only be done through, uh, through uh, uh, strong pilot testing. However, here's, here's the money point that I'm gonna wind up where I, be, where I began. It's not clear to me, and I don't think it's clear to anybody until real testing is done, that the private sector is the better guarantor of people's privacy. We have seen how governments have basically outsourced to the private sector, the town square, only to allow the private sector to censor and surveil uh, speech on that. Are we also going to outsource to them the Fourth Amendment, the right to privacy? Government is, is governed by the Fourth Amendment, but the private sector is not. And so the real question to me is, if China is prevailing and has set a benchmark for a surveillance coin, who is going to create Liberty Coin? And that, to me, is the real question we should be asking. Government has a head start. Government is subject to the Fourth Amendment. If the U.S. government were to develop a digital dollar with robust protections. And remember, privacy is a design element. It's a design feature when you're talking about digital money. If the proper privacy protections were there in a government-issued CBDC, as opposed to a private sector ones that are encouraged every day to surveil private economic activity as they do in the area of speech, a U.S. digital dollar could be the world's killer app. In fact, it could be attracting aspirational people around the world for more generations to come if we get the issue of privacy right. And so one of the very first things that the Digital Dollar Project did was put out a set of privacy principles to encourage the U.S. government, if and when it considers deploying a digital currency, if it gets the privacy principles right. Now, of course, hey, Chris, if it gets the- Chris, Chris, you're, I'm, I'm winding you're, up. I'm you're winding over up. your 10 minutes now, so we need to wind up. I'm going to end on this one. If we get privacy wrong, it doesn't matter whether it's done through the private sector or the public sector. That will be a disaster for a free society. And the indications, at least from the First Amendment use of speech, are not good. Anyway, I look forward to the questions. Thank you, Alex. And Thank I you. I apologize Chris. for going over. No, no, extremely interesting. Greg. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for everybody for joining. I'll get going. I think I'll just start sort of with some basics because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about CBDCs and how they work. First, I mean, you hear the term digital dollar a lot. Um, we actually already have two types of digital dollars in this country. The first is your bank account, uh, which is actually in digital dollars, not cash. That's referred to as commercial bank money. When you send or receive money using Venmo or ACH or RTP or take a direct deposit, that's all digital dollars in the form of commercial bank money. And that commercial bank money is your asset and the bank's liability. Central bank money currently is only in the form of reserves. It's an asset of the bank, a liability of the Fed. So a CBDC would be a new version of central bank money where you would effectively have an account with the Fed. It would be your asset and it would be the Fed's liability. Of course, what that means is if you transfer a dollar from your bank account to a CBDC, that dollar would no longer be funding the bank's assets. That is primarily loans. Instead, it would be funding the Fed's assets which are primarily historically uh, treasury debt and Fannie and Freddie debt, so also known as agency debt. Thus, every dollar moved from deposits to CBDC is a dollar funding government, not the private sector. It's amazing how many people don't understand that and think somehow it will still continue to fund loans. It will not. Now, it's easy to say that doesn't really matter because it's pretty broadly agreed that a CBDC, to Alex's earlier question, will not pay interest for a variety of reasons. So at that point, if you have a digital wallet, why would you hold money in a non-interest bearing CBDC, assuming rates rise? Um, and, it's, and why would you hold it there instead of a bank account that pays you deposits? Um, and that probably is true. And in that case, it would be an expensive hobby for central banks. The problem though is what happens in March, 2020, if people around the world, corporates and, and individuals decide, well, you know what, I'm really scared and worried. So just for today, just for this week, I'm gonna move my bank deposits into CBDC. Well, what that does is that implodes the banking system uh, because all of those deposits can no longer fund loans, but those loans are long-term loans. So the worrisome thing about that is, well, the regulators will know that 
ex ante. So they'll say, well, you know what? When we write our liquidity rules, we're not going to treat those deposits as stable funding and allow them to fund loans because look what could happen. Instead, we're going to require you to fund your loans with longer term debt. And of course, that raises uh, the costs of borrowing for everyone all the time, not just in March 2020. One other important fact, then I'll get to some of the use cases and debates. Um, and I think this gets to Chris's remarks, which I think is super, a super important point. You don't need a CBDC to tokenize money and use distributed ledger technology in, to improve the clearing and settling of payments. Um, I was actually looking just yesterday. Um, currently, JP Morgan right now is running a distributed ledger technology system for clearing and settling repo trades uh, using a tokenized deposit, which they call JP coin, JPM coin, and a tokenized treasury security. They're doing that on a permissioned blockchain, and other dealers are participating in that. Um, the primary benefits are basically extending the hours and eliminating fails because uh, it's delivery versus payment. So thus far, and this is not hypothetical like a CBDC, they've cleared and settled over $200 billion just on that platform. And they've managed to do that with any, without any government help. So for large dollar payments, cross-border payments, other payments, there is really no reason the same technology couldn't be used. Um, and those efforts are underway in various quarters. So, and I would also say no one in that context thinks, oh, this can't work because it's commercial bank money as opposed to central bank money. Everyone appears to be quite comfortable transacting in commercial bank money. So then the question is, why is there the push for central bank digital currencies, particularly among central banks? It's fun when you look at a central bank study of, of central bank digital currencies, the first thing cited usually in graph form is how many other central banks are studying it. So it's a definitely a FOMO type situation for the central banks. But I think that the primary reason that they are studying it is fear. Um, and, and it's, I think, a justifiable fear. And it's, again, something Chris got to. Um, it's a defense against crypto because they feel they're losing control of the money supply, of any money laundering, of sanctions, of just the world. Um, and they're, and again, largely right, because unlike the JP Morgan system, which is you know, a, a permission limited system, um, the idea of crypto is to be a permissionless pseudonymous um, system um, where the government has a lot less control. But I think what we'll see is CBDC isn't the answer to that. And in most cases, regulation is the answer to that. So if you think about a standalone cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, um, there are legitimate concerns about tax avoidance, AML evasions, sanctions evasions. Um, and it's a massive existential problem, which I think current events are highlighting, you know, driven largely by the fact that you have mixers out there that will camouflage your Bitcoin. And you have overseas exchanges like Binance and FTX um, that do not have US level um, C, you know, KYC, AML, et cetera. But the question is, is CBDC any answer to that? And the answer is, of course not because the CBDC is literally the last thing in the world people like that would want to hold. The whole point is to have a permissionless pseudonymous system and a CBDC will not be that. Sort of the next group of, of, of sort of crypto assets that, that the, I think the official sector worries about is stable coins, for example, DM Tether. Um, currently, that business model is largely limited to facilitating crypto trading and avoiding capital controls. So not you know, real world transactions. Um, although there was, I think, a fair amount of panic here in Washington around Facebook when it had plans for Diem. But again, the concern there is, I think, partly financial stability. Uh, that is a run as, you know, it's Tether is constructed not unlike a prime money market mutual fund and then consumer protection in the event there is a run. Um, but of course, you know, one easy answer to that is, well, not so easy, but moderately difficult, easier than a CBTC, is to regulate them like prime money market funds or turn them into government money funds and say, if you're going to issue a stable coin pegged to the dollar, well, that stable coin has to have as its background assets, treasury securities. Of course, that would be a lot like a CBDC. Um, but of course, you don't need to create a CBDC to have a stable coin that's backed <laughs> treasury securities. The other answer, which was the president's working group on financial markets idea was, well, what we should do is have banks and insured depository institutions issue stable coins. Then you don't have run risk because they're backed by the same capital liquidity, et cetera, and an examination that backs the banking system. So you don't have to worry about running from it or running to it. Um, that's a fairly good equilibrium. So it seems like there are answers there. The next up is DeFi and DeFi tokens, crypto to tokens. Um, with Ethereum, I think, still having over 50% market share. I was going to say that this is a disaster waiting to happen, except that disaster happened yesterday, I think, with Terra and Terra USD 
uh, which was an algorithmic um, token um, and which broke the buck in a rather dramatic way, I think down to 67 cents at one point. Um, there's also, if you haven't treated yourself to Sam Bankman-Fried's um, Odd Lots podcast on Bloomberg, uh, you should watch that where he talks about, uh, he's the founder of FTX and talks about yield farming, which was one of the applications here as a Ponzi scheme, uh, somewhat to the surprise of the hosts. Um, but again, here is, is a CBDC, an answer to these problems. Well, no, um, because unlike Bitcoin, this is actually associated with, with applications and businesses, and it's basically a governance token and equity share in something. And so offering a CBDC in exchange in, in an alternative as an alternative to Tether doesn't, or any of these coins doesn't really work. It's like saying, oh, don't have Apple stock, take cash. Well, no, I want the Apple stock because it comes with rights. The, the other concern has been, and the fear front has been, the dollar is a reserve currency. Again, I think given geopolitical events, we're learning that the reason the dollar is a reserve currency is because we have democracy and capital controls and the rule of law and a lot of other things, uh, not because of whether it's commercial bank money or central bank money. And you know, I think what the real risk here is that this has just become a large distraction um, to other potential things that central banks could be spending their time on, which are multiplying by the hour. I will say, and I'll just say this light, uh, quickly, but welcome questions. There are some offensive cases for for uh, CBDC that where you know people believe it would make the world better. One is financial inclusion. Uh, I think the only problem with that is that no one has come up with any use case for why someone who lacks the means or financial literacy or whatever to establish a bank account would instead you know establish a digital wallet and establish a bank account and upload that um, that money into CBDC, which wouldn't earn interest, and how that would be better for anybody. Another is cross-border. Greg, I think you, Greg yeah. you're on your 10-minute limit here. So I'm at nine minutes and 20 seconds, Alex. <laughs> I'm a litigator. I know my limits. Uh, <laughs> Good. Uh, the other, and I'm taking 10 seconds back. Uh, another is cross-border. <laughs> we're already seeing a revolution in, in, in that. <laughs> um, and then I just say, lastly, in terms of the prospects, although lots of, ban of central banks are studying this, I think recently Canada and Australia have said they're going to stop studying it because they don't see a use case. The UK House of Lords uh, threw a lot of cold water on this. Uh, in Europe, I'll take the over on when they adopt this, um, probably after they do capital markets union and pan-European deposit insurance. And I would say at the Fed, multiple governors have expressed concern <coughs> about this and thought maybe the, the uh, private sector should be more active here. So that'll finish my 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> Thank you very much. Bert, Brian? we're coming to you and uh, look forward to your comments, I guess, by phone here. Yes. Uh, you, can Greg. you hear me? Yes, we can, can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, and my apologies for not being able to uh, connect by video. Um, I want to uh, uh, reiterate uh, a lot of the excellent points that, uh, that Greg just uh, uh, made. Um, you know, first of all, we have to recognize that uh, CBDC would uh, uh, merely be a, a deposit liability of the Federal Reserve System and therefore of the of the federal government. So that uh, uh, CDVCs uh, potentially are a, a source of funding for the uh, the, the federal government's uh, deficits and, and, and accumulated debt, and um, uh, that I think is uh, is a potential danger uh, that they they pose in that uh, CDVCs could possibly uh, divert money from private sector uh, uh, in, uh, uses to uh, to just another source of funding and potentially a, a, a particularly cheap source of funding for the for, for the federal government there. So I think that. Uh, uh, there is, uh, you should be concerned about uh, uh, that. The, uh, the, the second thing is that uh, in order for CBDCs to uh, to be very competitive, uh, it would seem to me that they would have to pay interest. Uh, uh, and that may not be so significant uh, uh, today in, in the low interest rate environment, but as we know, rates are going up and could could go a lot higher. So a question that uh, I think uh, immediately has to come to mind, why would any individual or business want to hold uh, CBDCs uh, if they if they didn't pay interest? It's like uh, literally holding uh, currency um, uh, uh, in, in your wallet. And, and uh, th so I think that, that be the issue of interest on CDBCs becomes uh, especially important as rates uh, uh, rise. And that, uh, again, raises a, a yet another question about the structure of CDBCs, and that is, uh, would they effectively be demand deposits uh, at the Federal Reserve, which creates a run risk of its own? Or uh, would the, uh, the, the Fed possibly structure some of the CDBCs 
CBDCs as uh, as time deposits or even certificates deposits, and that's an issue that uh, I think would uh, uh, have to be addressed. The uh, as I think has been uh, mentioned in, uh, in in some of the writings on this topic, that uh, while uh, CDCs would be in an account at the uh, at the Federal Reserve, uh, presumably uh, existing banks and credit unions would be tasked to effectively serve as agents for the Fed in uh, accepting deposits into uh, into the Fed accounts. That is. Businesses and individuals wouldn't deal directly uh, with the Fed. But again, that raises the question of if individuals and businesses are going to um, uh, buy and uh, make and accept payments in uh, CBCs, but have to do it through a bank, uh, how does that uh, provide any particular advantage over uh, insured bank deposits? Um, but the, um, uh, the the more troubling aspect of this is that uh, CDBCs would be uh, competing against uh, banks and, uh, uh, and and credit unions for uh, for deposits, which is why I think that uh, uh, you know potentially there would be a a, a possibility of uh, of uh, interest rate uh, competition uh, if if CDBCs in fact did pay interest. But you know a, a bigger question is is once all those deposits are uh, placed at the Fed in the form of CDBCs, uh, what would the uh, the Feds uh, uh, do with that money? How would it be invested? One possibility, as I've already mentioned, is that uh, they effectively would buy, uh, buy Treasury debt. But to the extent that those funds were fed back into the private sector, uh, how would that uh, uh, how would that happen? And to what extent would the Fed then become a, a tool for uh, a credit allocation within the economy? And to what extent would that be uh, uh, politicized uh, any more than uh, more than uh, credit allocation is politicized uh, uh, today? But I think the uh, you know more basic concern is that uh, uh, CBDCs could uh, really reduce the role of, uh, of private sector banks, and particularly as allocators of, of credit. And I don't think that uh, we would want a situation in the uh, in the United States where we had government any more involved in. Credit allocation than they they already uh, are, and uh, in terms of uh, how this might affect the banking industry, I would be concerned that the there might be a particularly adverse impact on uh, on community banks and, uh, and and small credit unions, uh, particularly if they had to compete in in uh, uh, obtaining funds uh, fund the. From the Fed, uh, in order to phone, uh, fund their own uh, uh, loans and in investments, and so uh, this is an aspect of, uh, of the CDBC concept that I don't think has been thought through uh, especially well. And that is uh, what the relationship would be between the Fed and and the banking uh, industry. And there's also an interesting question too, and that is what would be the role of federal deposit insurance? Would we even need federal deposit insurance anymore if people either holding CDBCs or could easily flee to CDBCs uh, in a time of stress, and I believe Craig, uh, Greg mentioned uh, uh, something about that. Uh, what I think is one of the most significant concerns, and that is uh, the whole build, the ability of, uh, of of the Fed. And, and therefore the federal government, since the Fed is a federal agency, to monitor financial transactions. Uh, CDBCs could, in effect, be a major step forward in implementing the surveillance state uh, because the Fed would have uh, uh, in its computers uh, uh, all transaction data involving CDBCs in terms of who, uh, who, who payments were, were made to. And um, uh, this could open the door to the uh, uh, the federal government through the Fed uh, becoming quite prescriptive in terms of what people could spend CDBCs on and more importantly what they couldn't spend them on and uh, the other question comes up and that is to what extent could um, uh, would uh, uh, th that Fed data be available to um, uh, to the courts in case uh, uh, litigation might arise as to how a particular CDBC was uh, re uh, received or, or, or spent. And, uh, you know, the banking industry, of course, uh, and, and banks are subject to uh, uh, having to uh, uh, provide data, uh, uh, you know, when there's an appropriate uh, subpoena. But I think that banks uh, are very diligent in terms of trying to protect uh, their uh, customers, their 
depositors and customers' uh, records, uh, particularly with regard to financial transactions. I would be skeptical if the uh, the Fed would be as uh, uh, keen about uh, trying to protect the uh, the privacy of financial transactions. Um, so I think these are just some of the issues that uh, that arise with uh, regard to CDBCs. But I think the most basic question of all for which I have not heard a good uh, answer with regard to the United States is, why do we need it? I have yet to uh, uh, hear or read what I consider to be a good use case for CDBCs. So I would hope that uh, as we go down the road with this, that eventually, uh, and sooner rather than later, uh, the Fed concludes is that the United States does not need a central bank digital currency. So I look forward to uh, further discussion and questions. Uh, thank you all for excellent presentations. Let's go back through the panel again uh, in the same uh, order. Chris, uh, Greg, and Bert. A couple of minutes, three minutes at the most to respond to anything anybody else said or add additional comments of your own. So, Chris? Thanks, Alex. You know, I, I was reflecting to somebody today. Uh, I've, been, I've been around the block a few times. I'm in my early 60s. I've been in the public life since the 1980s. And in the 1990s, I was a very active lawyer in New York and London representing a lot of dot-com companies. And I remember when the market took a tumble in 2000 and pets.com disappeared and others, this, the, 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 the refrain was, well, that's it. This is over. Um, uh, this was just a, a, a flash in the pan. Well, not at all. Out of the ashes of that crisis rose some companies that have completely changed the way we share information, the way we interact with each other, the way we shop online, the way we interact today on Zoom, for example. Um, to think that um, technology uh, and, and, and digital ledgers and blockchain technology and an internet of value is not going to march on and answer some of these very questions that we're posing today, I, I think it's just asking too much to say, well, we need to know what this is going to solve. Well. We didn't know what it was going to solve by sending a man to the moon. We went anyway, right? We didn't know what it was problems it was going to solve by creating the internet because time doesn't necessarily give us those answers before technology marches on. And that's why we at the Digital Dollar Project need, think we really need to explore some of these questions. So some of the assumptions that have put forward here, for example, that somehow people will take money out of banks in a run. Well, in fact, maybe it may be the opposite. The simplicity of moving digital money from a wallet on one's mobile device to a bank account on one's mobile device may make them not run down to the street corner to take out their cash if they think a bank's in trouble. The notion that it won't help financial inclusion, there's no evidence one way or the other. The only way we can answer these questions is by doing some real testing. It may be the opposite. In fact, the simplicity of putting money into a bank account to move from a digital wallet may mean more people come into the financial system. The biggest barrier to financial inclusion is our current confusion between the methodology of AML KYC which requires credentialed identity to access the financial system. And the goals of AML KYC, which are laudable, is part of the problem. If we take a more modern approach to AML KYC, which is let people into the financial system and then monitoring their activities as opposed to their identities, an activity space using big data analysis and modern tools, the same tools that eBay and Facebook use every day to track our activities, would allow us to have much greater financial inclusion. So there's so much assumptions about what this means. And I just want to end with this last point to Bert's point about protecting privacy. I'm not convinced that the private sector is a better guardian of people's financial activity than is the public sector. It, these are all design choices. Okay. And so what we really need to do as a free society is make it very clear, loud and clear, that if the federal government embarks upon central bank digital currency, it must be guided by the Fourth Amendment and our privacy must be protected. And if they do that, they will create the, the greatest digital currency of the future. And if they get that wrong, then, then actually it's going to fail and more people will move to Bitcoin and other sources than they will to a digital dollar. So getting the issue of privacy right testing, doing pilot projects to test out some of these assumptions so that as time and technology marches on, the United States is in the vanguard of development and not simply saying, just say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to move forward. The world may get way ahead of us if we do that. Okay, Chris, thank you. You make me think of a great essay by Friedrich Hayek, Competition as a Discovery Procedure. 
Hayek says you have to run the competition in the market to find out what's going on. You can't know it in advance. Great. Thank you. Other comments? Sure, just a couple. Um, first, I mean, I, I don't think anybody's saying that distributed ledger technology is going to go away. I mean, the question is, what's the government's role in distributed ledger technology? I mean, in, when the dot-coms blew up, I don't think anybody thought technology was going to go away, but nobody said, well, we need to have government.com and have the government start a dot-com. Um, on the stress point and the potential for runs, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I would think if you have a phone and you're a corporate treasurer or an individual and under stress, you can, with a click of your phone, move out of a bank liability into a liability that is guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States, that'd be a pretty tempting proposition um, if the world was blowing up. In fact, I can't imagine not doing that. Um, on the privacy point, I think it's an interesting one. Um, you know, the Fed has made clear, I think all the central banks have made clear that they are not talking about a tokenized um, anonymous version of TCBDC. They are all talking about, and the Fed is quite explicit, it is only talking about an intermediated model. Because, of course, the Fed doesn't want to do account administration, AML, KYC, sanctions, sanction screening, et cetera. So if there is a U.S. CBDC, and I doubt it, you're going to have your U.S. CBDC in your PNC or JP Morgan wallet, or maybe your PayPal wallet. Uh, but whoever has that wallet will see it just the way they see your bank transactions. So no more privacy, no less privacy. I don't know if the government is also going to see those transactions, which would mean less privacy, but it, it will it will involve this, this, the, 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 the private sector seeing your transactions in an intermediated model. There's simply no going around that. Um, to Bert's point on the interest, which is an interesting one, and, and one I will confess I do not understand. I published in the chat a note from our chief economist, who's the former deputy director of monetary affairs at the Fed, assessing the, the monetary policy impact of a CBDC. I'll only give you the bottom line, which is um, I don't think any central bankers really believe it can pay interest. Um, it's extremely technical, and the article will go through that. Um, there's also the practical point that if it pays interest, that's actually the taxpayers paying interest, which would probably not be terribly popular. Uh, but I would I would advise anybody who's really interested in that to read the note. Apparently, the one great attraction is it would allow the government easily to pay negative interest rates. But again, I don't think our government's really interested in doing that. Um, but it's a really interesting discussion if anybody's interested in it. Thanks, Greg. Of course, the Fed used to say it wouldn't pay interest rate on its uh, reserves. And then they decided they wanted to. And or had to. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the uh, hearing in the House of Lords, uh, where one of the lords asked the uh, head of the Bank of England, "Well, would you be interested in this information?" He said, "No, I wouldn't." And the the lord replied, "But maybe some future governor of the Bank of England." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I thought that was a great point. Uh, Bert, comments? Okay. Thank you, Alex. Uh, just a, a, a few uh, concluding comments. You know, first of all, I have yet to understand really why uh, central bank digital currencies would increase uh, financial uh, inclusion. It, uh, uh, it it's not that difficult uh, for people to uh, uh, you know have a banking relationship uh, these days, and I don't know why uh, central bank digital currencies would make it uh, any easier uh, uh, to do it. Um, yeah, with regard to the privacy issue. It seems to me that the best protection that people can have from government intrusions and government knowing what they're up to is that the government doesn't get the information in the first place. Uh, you know, once it's captured uh, and either in government computers or can be accessed uh, uh, by the government, then uh, the threat to privacy exists. And so uh, that's why I think the uh, that to me is another argument against uh, having central bank digital currencies, because if it's there, the transactions will be recorded in some fashion and therefore uh, accessible. Um, I think that uh, uh, central bank digital currencies, picking up on a point that uh, Greg made, uh, really could increase Increase the potential for uh, run risk, uh, particularly if you know it just takes a few clicks uh, on, on your computer to to shift funds uh, out of a commercial bank uh, into um, a central bank digital currency. That uh, uh, if that was there, at least some people could uh, would would run if they were concerned about the economy, and that would have tremendous uh, overnight uh, uh, disintermediation uh, uh, challenges that uh, uh, I think the Fed would be uh, very hard put pressed to uh, to try and uh, and neutralize and finally uh, with regard to interest uh 
I've done some thinking about this, and I think that, uh, uh, in fact, interest could be paid on uh, the central bank digital currencies. Because if interest wasn't paid, particularly in a high interest rate environment such as we may be, be entering, the question is, why would anyone want to hold a central bank digital currency for any length of time? So, again, thank you for the opportunity to participate. Thanks, Bert. Stay on. We're, we're now going to come to questions from the audience. We have a lot of questions which have been sent in. Thank you. We unfortunately cannot possibly get to all of them, but I'm going to start at the top and we'll, we'll see how we do. Uh, uh, question one from the audience is, what conclusions can we draw from the Chinese central bank digital currency? And what do we think about that? Chris, you mentioned this in your remarks. So maybe you would start off there. What, well, maybe it's maybe maybe it supports Bert's argument uh, that governments, uh, some governments, do want to surveil data because it's quite clear that the Chinese central bank digital currency will be a handy export product. You'll be able to get CBDC in a box, courtesy of the People's Bank of China. If you're one of the many regimes around the world that actually want to have a currency that will allow you to surveil your citizens. Now, again, that's a design choice. Um, we, uh, fortunately, thanks to our founders, have been given the Fourth Amendment right to privacy. And so how we design, should we design, should we deploy a central bank digital currency, how it's designed, and if it were to be designed so that government could not gather that information. Um, and I would remind you that we've outsourced the First Amendment to big tech companies, and it hasn't actually worked out so well for privacy. Um, and so the question is not, will a U.S. government surveil it? It's what does a free society demand from a U.S. government in designing a central bank digital currency? As I began my opening, I think it's not a foregone conclusion that a digital dollar would be a surveillance tool, but it's up to us to make sure it isn't. Uh, and that's why design and testing. But what we can learn from the Chinese digital currency is it's very much a surveillance tool. And I expect it to show up on uh, friendly dictatorships around the world um, in, in the next 10 years or so. And as you pointed out, based on the surveillance, surveillance it's also a tool for interfering with your ability to oh, it's, Yeah, it's surveillance and control. Oh, surveillance and control. No, you can't right. spend that money. But my point is, it's not just government digital money that can do surveillance and control. The private sector can do that as well. The choice to me is not between sovereign and non-sovereign. It's a, it's a choice between liberty and privacy or, or surveillance and censorship. Yeah, I mean, I Any other comments I mean, I, I, on the Chinese? Yeah, great. No, I just, I mean, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I guess I'd make the super obvious point that for, you know, jurisdictions, countries that want to use, you know, for, you know, a central bank digital currency for that purpose, a U.S. CBDC isn't going to be any attraction to them, obviously. And that's, that's a good thing too. Um, exactly. And, you know, and it gets to the larger point that, and, and Chris, I know you're not making this point, but I have heard, and I think even Chairman Powell was asked this at a FOMC press conference. Well, you know, do we need a CBDC to protect the, the status of the dollar as the world's, you know, hegemonic reserve currency? And, you know, I think he answered quite rightly. I can't remember the examples he used. I'll give seven. You know, the reason we're that is that we have a stable government. We have the rule of law. We don't impose capital controls. We do swap lines when people need dollars around the world. You know, we have a good military, um, et cetera. So if you're worried about the dollar status, you know, I don't think a Chinese central bank digital currency with surveillance powers is really going to you know, convince any country out in the civilized world that isn't under China's thumb to convert. Um, you know, I think, again, we're better off you know, investing our central bank time into, you know, curbing inflation, our, you know, executive branch time into getting, you know, deficits under control. And that's the kind of thing that's going to keep the dollar going. I will. Can and, I just I respond? Go ahead, Bert, and then I do want to respond. Well, to well I just want to say that I, I agree with uh, what uh, what Greg is, uh, uh, is saying. Uh, but the key thing about privacy is the best protection uh, for privacy is for the government not to, or the central bank to collect the data in the first place. Once that data has been collected, once uh, there are electronic records of transactions uh, that have taken place, then that data is potentially as accessible. And so uh, I think the, the, the only way we're going to really generally protect privacy is not to have a central bank digital currency in the first place. Okay, Chris, you have one more comment. Well, go but the problem with not having a, a, an entity that's governed by a, a, a constitutional right to privacy uh, prevailing money means that unless unless there's statutory protection, 
uh, you could have the governments doing the same thing to big tech stablecoin operators that they do to big tech social media platforms and basically impose upon them the things the government couldn't do itself by censoring speech, which is what happens today. So you could envision a world, in fact, where the safest place uh, in terms of privacy may be a government subject to the Fourth Amendment, as opposed to a big tech company that will do things government tells it to do, as it does today with censoring speech online. I mean, I guess the only thing I'd say is, I mean, I think the banking industry has a pretty good reputation for safeguarding consumer privacy. Part of that's reputational. Part of that is law. But and that again, means you have to restrict, you know, activity to banks, which is one of the big objections to the president's working group proposal of bank-like regulation of stablecoin operators. Yeah, but, but again, if you can, only, if you're only going to do this in an intermediate model, a bank or, or a PayPal is going to have the information anyway. It's, there's no, there's no workaround unless you're really going to have the Fed you know, build a, a customer service department and an AML screening unit. And I don't think they have any appetite for that. Apparently China does. Let's, yes. <laughs> let's uh, come Let's come to a second question here, since we have a lot of audience, audience interest. Uh, this is, uh, are there any inferences uh, uh, for uh, either positive or negative for U.S. public debt or government debt that would arise from the CBDC questions? Any implications there? Well, uh, Alex, uh, this is something I have given some thought to, and that is if uh, you have these huge balances on uh, that the Fed has collected and that are on the uh, the Fed's balance sheet as a liability, the question then is where where do they get invested? And uh, while hopefully uh, at least some of those funds would be uh, recycled back into the into the private uh, sector, uh, that would become a very tempting uh, source for uh, financing the, the federal deficit. And uh, that uh, could could end up uh, being uh, very detrimental to the economy. If, in effect, monies that would normally be fed back into the private sector, instead we're seen as a, a cheap source of funding for the federal debt. I mean, I, I guess I'd just say, I mean, for the interest, assuming I'm right on the interest rate and they won't pay an interest rate, I don't think it'd have a big impact simply because I think it's just going to end up being a hobby if they do this. Because, again, people will keep their money in bank deposits earning interest instead of a central bank digital currency earning no interest. Again, unless there's a stress event, and I think that's the fundamental gaping problem with this. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I don't I don't see where you'd have the kind of volumes that really influence the debt. And Greg, I would agree with you on that. If if interest is not paid on a central bank digital currency, then what's the point of holding it? Yeah, I, uh, it'd be a thing, as you said. I'll just come back to what I said in the beginning. I think the question of whether these things are interest bearing or not, uh, including Bert's point, is there no reason you couldn't have time deposits or or term instruments of various kinds issued by the uh, central bank? That that's a, a huge question as to the uh, implications. And then if they were interest bearing, uh, if you're not a profit oriented organization, namely the central bank. Uh, how much can you pay? And then Greg brought up the point, which has been argued, it's a good way to impose negative interest rates on the people if the government or the central bank has. Uh, and Alex, I, I think and the even larger point is if you think about assets and liabilities, if they take onto their balance sheet by paying interest, massive amounts of liabilities, they need assets. Absolutely. And there's only so many treasury securities you can buy. Absolutely. Or Fannie and Freddie securities. And you buy up all the mortgages and then what? Right. So it eventually means they're going to have to get into funding, you know, the real economy. I hate the word real economy. I don't know what the unreal economy is, but the non-government parts of the economy. Yes, I, I, I think that's a good point. And we have a question. We have a question, Bert. You may want to take this one up uh, from the audience uh, that says, how about the fact that local banks make local credit decisions with this CBDC may mean instead you'd have centralized Washington decisions for commercial loans? Well, I think that that's a, a, a very legitimate uh, concern. And that uh, gets to the question of what, what would CDBCs uh, do for uh, community banks we, uh, that are serving, uh, you know, how would they be able to uh, access uh, all these monies that uh, would be piling up on the on the Fed balance sheet as a, as a liability? And so that is something that I don't think has been given uh, sufficient consideration as to uh, uh, how the, the, the local community bank funding itself uh, 
uh, you know, largely with the deposits it gathers locally, be able to compete against uh, uh, the Fed if the Fed became uh, a, a significant issuer of uh, central bank digital currency. So there's a credit. There's not only a credit allocation issue in terms of uh, how how the Fed would influence credit allocation across the entire economy, but more specifically, uh, would it uh, effectively pull credit uh, availability away from uh, uh, smaller communities in the rural areas of America? Any other thoughts on that? I have another question here, uh, perhaps of interest. It says, here's a practical question concerning digital currencies. I live in Florida and losing power for days at a time is not unheard of. Uh, during this hurricane season. How would a shift to digital, digital currencies affect a person's abilities to get supplies or do transactions when the electricity is off? Any thoughts on that? Logical question. I think it's somewhat related. Um, and I, I meant to mention this. I mean, there is actually a revolution going on in payments right now. Um, you know, starting in 2017, the clearinghouse where I used to be um, started a real-time real payment system. Um, and those those payments clear in seconds, not in days like the ACH system. Um, and, and it's interesting, we've, I recently wrote a note asking why the Treasury Department hasn't decided to use RTP uh, to make disaster payments or even you know, regular you know, government payments, tax refunds, whatever. Uh, the Treasury has a, a no-bid contract with uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve on the, using its ACH network only. Um, but, you know, I, I think... You know, the potential for real-time payment. Well, real-time payments are a reality. I think over 60% of USDDAs are currently eligible for real-time payments. And the question is just when does people want to start making them? They may not make sense for everything. If you're doing a batch payroll at the end of the month, you really need that to be real-time if you can schedule it in advance. But there are going to be all kinds of new ways to get payments to folks long before anybody ever comes up with a central bank digital currency. And you know, to pick up on Greg's point, the more that that innovation takes place in the, in the private sector within the banking system, uh, that further reduces the need for having a central bank digital currency. Okay, I'm going to still. I still think we're in trouble when the electricity is off. <laughs> in more ways, backup than generators. Uh, and we do have real time settlement if you're paying in dollar bills, Greg. <laughs> it's true. The, uh, <laughs> we have a uh, an interesting question here. It says it sounds like to incentivize adoption of CBDCs, a central bank and government would have to employ many of the same tools the union used to force the adoption of greenbacks in the American Civil War. Exclusive legal tender status, special privileges for banks that facilitated the transaction, taxation. Uh, payable only in the new currency. Does the panel agree or disagree with this analogy to greenbacks in the Civil War? I mean, I, well, I'm going to let I, I'm going to think the uh, the other panels will be better at the Civil War history, particularly Bert. But, um, but the, I think that the I just sort of bristled at in order to incentivize people to use CBDC. If there were good use cases, to Bert's point, you wouldn't have to incentivize the use of CBDC. Um, but you know, particularly in the financial inclusion world. You know, we hear a lot about how it's going to make the poor wealthy, and yet no one can come up with a use case. And I've spent a lot of time on this. Um, and again, the, the the notion that this is going to make credit cheaper or allow the unbanked to somehow magically have an account at the Fed, um, given why they don't have accounts at banks. It, you know, again, if, if you need to incentivize people to have a CBDC, there's no reason to have a CBDC. We used, to have, we used to have accounts at the post office which were accounts with the government. I don't know if you saw it, but they, they actually ran, I think last year, a, a pilot program for postal banking. Um, and they ended up, I think after one quarter, they had six people signed up. We did a little funny note called the dirty half dozen in post postal banking. Uh, so yeah, sorry, I couldn't resist. We have uh, less than a minute for a final shot. Go ahead, Bert. Well, uh, again, I think the, the the fundamental problem here is you have a a, a, a proposal uh, that's looking to solve a problem that, in fact, uh, does not ex exist. At least, it will not solve uh, the, uh, the the problem that has been 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 posed. And so, uh, again, I think this is ultimately for all the research and studies that will be done on the central bank digital currencies. I find it hard to believe that the the Fed will actually go through and uh, create something along that line. 15 seconds, final shot. If not, oh, go ahead. 
I was just going to simply say that I think what the benefit of this debate is that the future is going to be complica complicated and very exciting. And what I would say to the audience is, all, in a free society, we all need to get involved in this debate because the risks all the way around and, and ultimately the risks to our economic liberty and privacy, what are our First Amendment freedoms, but expressed in a capitalist society through our financial transactions. And so I think it's, it's a call to arms. Money is changing right before our eyes. And I think we all need to be engaged in what is that going to look like in the future, whether it's going to enhance our liberty or degrade it, ultimately is the question we face. Thank you, Greg. Final 15 seconds. I guess my last 15 seconds or I'm on mute. So that, that's okay. <laughs> we know that you're not usually mute. So <laughs> thank you to the panel for a really uh, excellent presentations and discussions. I think this was a terrific exploration of a highly interesting uh, set of issues. And with that, I'm back to you, Brian. Yeah, of course, it was an amazing panel. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I would like to thank our audience for joining us and participating, especially with all those great questions. We welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you for joining us today. and We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.